um, page 25 is where we're at. Uh, we're going to talk about the text of the New Testament. A lot of people struggle uh, with some of these things. We're going to talk about some pretty serious uh, matters here, some things that may call into question how you've pictured the Bible in the past, um, but maybe not. It, it, you know, by the Holy Spirit, we pray it's uh, made a little bit easier for us, but also, too, the Holy Spirit does cause us to, to chew on things, to chew on God's Word, like you chew a good piece of steak and you ruminate on it. Um, uh, a lot of people sometimes become offended or it's an obstacle to their faith when we tell them things like, we don't have the original Bible. Right? We don't have pages that we can say, this is Luke's handwriting. We don't have the pages to say, this is John's writing. We don't have those yet. <laughs> right? We haven't dis maybe the Lord has removed those. What are some of the reasons, maybe, that we could think why the Lord has prevented us from having the original text? Any thoughts? I mean, we think it must, yeah, that, we think that would be the best thing in the world, maybe, and even great, but do you, could you think of some, how that might be an obstacle in some way? Okay. Maybe um, separating the Bible from what it teaches. Right? By like what you said, worshiping it. Can you think of some examples where God's people have done that? That's a pretty, that's a pretty bold claim. Bones, bones of saints. <laughs> worshiping the bones of saints. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, we, we can, right, worship the Bible in a, in a way that is harmful for us. Everything God gives to us is a gift, is it not? Yes. Yeah, thank you. Good. Um, everything God gives to us. It's so funny when I tell the confirmands, I say, what do your parents teach you about drugs? You know, oh, they're bad, you know, to avoid them. And I say, well, you're all a bunch of drug users. And I say, you need to turn around and tell your parents, no, drugs are good. Some of y'all probably did say that. <laughs> and because what are we talking about, right? We're talking about pharmaceuticals and using them for good. God, it's funny to watch the kid's face when you tell them drugs are good. But just because, you know, they don't think about taking medicine as drugs, right? But indeed, everything that God gives us is a gift when used rightly. So do you think, do you think even the gift of God's Word, could we misuse God's Word? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, all the time. And more, more so than just um, like grabbing a Bible and throwing it at your brother or sister because you're angry at them. Uh, we can abuse it by its teaching. And we can abuse it by this point that B makes, that we, we worship it. Another religion that has kind of fallen for this is Islam. Islam worships the Quran. And in fact, in Islam, the only true Quran is one that is written in Arabic. And they say, even if you don't understand Arabic, when you hear the sound of Arabic, have you, like when we watch movies that are set in the Middle East, what's always part of the soundtrack? The call to prayer. The call to prayer and you hear it. You know, and to them, I know, that's, that's, that's Arabic. That's Arabic. Right? You people don't know any difference. It's Arabic. Right? Just like, you know, I bring out Greek and Hebrew. You have no idea. Anyway, sometimes I don't even know. Um, but they say when, a, when even when a, a uh, 
an infidel hears that, there's something deep down in them that it appeals to and it's beautiful. When they hear Arabic, when they hear God's word in its, their, their mind, the perfect language. So any translation, a, a Muslim could, a lot of times, um, I'm, I'm not an expert on this by any stretch, but they could say, you know, if you're not reading the Quran in Arabic, um, you don't have the true Quran. And they say, even if you don't understand Arabic, but if you're taught how to read it and pronounce it, then, then you are speaking the true Quran. But in English, and there are going to be some more liberal Muslims who are going to say, oh, that's, you know, that's not true. But uh, they worship the text of the Quran. Uh, and, and we have this distinction between what the Bible is and what it teaches. Yeah, Matt. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Good point. Thanks for thanks for saying that. Um, it it that is a perfect example of worshiping a text. Um, we as Christians, right? And we can imagine that perhaps this is one of the reasons why God d hasn't shown us the original text. So we're going to talk about that a little bit today, and why that's not necessarily an offense. Shouldn't be an offense to us that we don't have the original text in the Bible. Also, too, in the Old Testament. You remember the story of the bronze snake, right? Then after the episode of the bronze snake, what happened to the bronze snake? What did they do with it? Do you remember? They started worshiping the bronze snake. God gave them this bronze snake with a promise attached to it, but then the people started worshiping the bronze snake. Um, it's a whole episode in the Bible. It's quite interesting. And so uh, they destroyed it. Um, so too, you know, with, with the scriptures, hopefully in this in here, we're going to be taught um, how to rightly receive God's word in spite of not having the original text. Another topic he's going to talk about today is people who say, how can you trust the Bible because of all the mistakes and errors in it? How would you approach that? Somebody says to you, do you know there are a bunch of errors and mistakes in the Bible? What would you say? Yeah, good, good, absolutely. I don't know if, yeah, exactly. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I have found in debating with people and discussing apologetics, it's one of the best tools. So when somebody says that is to ask them, what specifically are you talking about? Because most people just parrot that talking point. In our, in our reading today, he's going he's gonna to address some of these things. Um, Pastor Pearson was at uh, seminary while I was there. He was a, a friend of mine, um, or acquaintance of mine, uh, and he uh, is going to teach us a little bit today in regards to that. What do people mean when they say there are errors in the Bible? And when we ask them, well, what in particular do you speak of? And they will say, well, I don't know. I just know it's... And you can say, well, maybe you should go and look. Maybe you should look for yourself. If they're educated in this and they do know, Today, we're going to equip you with some tools to then if they say, oh, yeah, I know this one, bada bing, bada boom. And then you'll have now an argument to say, well, okay, yeah, good, I'm glad you're well read, um, but here is how we, how this, here's how this is not a problem, and to give, a, to give them an answer. Okay, page 25, the text of the New Testament cannot be trusted. Ancient texts are studied in a formal and well-defined manner that allows confidence in the practice. 
The superabundance of New Testament manuscripts enables a high degree of accuracy in analyzing their authenticity. New Testament documents have been shown to be extremely reliable when analyzed by text critics. There are a few New Testament texts with significant differences among manuscripts, but none of these undermine or contradict any fundamental Christian beliefs. How can you believe the New Testament when it has undergone so many changes, additions, and revisions over time? This objection assumes that today's version of the New Testament is a far cry from the original, having been passed down in a manner similar to the children's game of telephone. Humans were involved in the transmi transmission process, after all, and humans are fallible. More than that, humans routinely push agendas. Someone could have altered the words of Scripture to make the masses believe in the Trinity or think Jesus is divine. In fact, we are told so many mistakes and changes were introduced over the centuries that there are now more errors than words among the manuscripts of the New Testament. Thus, skeptics often dismiss it as being utterly corrupt from start to finish, giving us no hope of ever knowing what it initially said. In truth, such claims are highly sensational and misleading. They depend more on baseless conspiracies than on demonstrable facts. So how do we know the text of the New Testament remains reliable? The answer is simple. We should consider how ancient texts are studied, the evidence regarding ancient copies of the New Testament, and the significance of the differences among these copies. In doing this, we find reason for great confidence that today's New Testament is a faithful and accurate representation of what the authors themselves wrote. The Art and Science of Recovering Ancient Documents What is textual criticism? Today, exact replicas of the books are printed by the thousands. The cut and paste feature of digital content allows for perfect cop well, almost perfect copying, right? I'd say that was an error, right? You still find errors in books. Before the invention of the printing press, however, all manuscripts were composed and copied by hand, scripture included. Mistakes and errors, often called variants, were thus unavoidable. The field of study that attempts to determine what these documents originally said is called textual criticism. Instead of criticizing the Bible, textual criticism means thinking critically and carefully about handwritten manuscripts. It examines discrepancies between copies of those manuscripts in hopes of identifying what was first written. This is important because, as far as we know, the originals have been lost to the sands of time. So how is textual criticism done? To start, it must be noted that changes in manuscripts were not all made at the same time. Rather, variants were introduced at different times and places. By comparing all known copies of a given document, then, it is usually possible to discover when, where, and even why copyists and scribes made their alterations. Because we have so many copies of each individual New Testament book, textual critics can create a family tree of manuscripts and figure out the original wording in the vast majority of cases. In particular, textual critics look at both external evidence and internal evidence. Regarding external evidence, scholars generally prefer earlier copies of manuscripts over later ones. For example, a copy of Paul's letter to the Romans written in the 2nd century will probably be favored over a copy of Romans dated hundreds of years later. Other factors include what the document was written on, papyrus, animal skin, etc., and where it falls in the family tree of texts. 
For internal evidence, scholars consider which is the more difficult reading in the eyes of the copyist or scribe, such that he would have been inclined to change it, either to harmonize one text with another, as with the Gospels, or to replace confusing words with simpler or clearer ones. In Matthew 17, 12 to 13, for instance, one copyist wanted to make sure readers knew the Son of Man was Jesus and not John the Baptist. So he altered the text to make this more obvious, but made note of it. The version that was harder to understand is thus considered original. Lastly, a biblical author's other writings will also be studied to see which variant reading is most in line with his style, vocabulary, and theology. There are additional factors, but suffice it to say that these methods are tried and true. Textual critics, whether they are Christians or not, tend to have great confidence that they can reconstruct the original version of the New Testament with a minimal amount of uncertainty. Let us now turn to some of the evidence textual critics have uncovered in favor of the reliability of Scripture. Okay, everyone tracking so far? It's a science. There is a science to studying ancient documents and uh, getting to what they originally taught. And also, as you see here, he mentions some of the things that would cause us to question certain things, like the material they're written on. We also have certain documents written that uh, things like Gospel of Thomas. You'll start hearing about this. Every year we start hearing about the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary, around Easter time. You're going to the news, you might, maybe, I don't know, usually in the past, but in the news, they're going to run some story about some guy who is a research dude or dudette um, who has found this secret book that the church has hidden from the church. Every year it comes out, it's the same stuff. But any serious scholar doesn't accept this. Any serious textual critic knows that all these stories and things that they parade out around the most important time of the church is really just to lead the blind further astray. Um, that they'll have things like one of the ways they can tell a document is, oh, it's one of my favorite memes on the internet right now. It's one of these memes that says, never believe everything you read on the internet. And then it has a picture of Abe Lincoln, and it credits him as the one who wrote that. That's some of the stuff they find in like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Mary. They find weird things like that. Uh, one of the things is that, one of the stories is that Jesus, uh, when he came out of the tomb, people raised him up on their shoulders and carried him about, you know, parading. Well, the challenge is, is that that wasn't a way of celebration in Jesus' day, that people didn't do that. So it's, it, it, it's, it's that simple, it's that easy in a lot of these texts, okay? Because the authors who are composing the text, the things that they assume are just normal for them, and they think that this is just how it's always been, right? They're good church members, right? The way things we do now is the way it's always been from now until all eternity. Yeah, Jessica. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's kind of like our gospel reading today when they have the man born blind 
And everybody wants an answer to their question. They want to know the why. You know, and, and that, you know, I, I, that's a wonderful point. And I, on a certain level, can sympathize with those people who want to add to the scriptures. I, in, in one way, understand that. I, wanna, I, wanna, I, want, I want to fill in some gaps. I want, I want to give assurance to people. You know, I know better than God. <laughs> I will tell, I, I will tell, you know, I'll get this figured out. Uh, yeah, Chris. No, I know. I've read a book, too, about the Gospel of Thomas. So what they failed to mention on those reports is that those are much later. Mm-hmm. They're um, from several centuries um, after the Gospels were actually written, and that the early church examined those and took a look at them and, and set them aside as not being credible or reliable. Mm-hmm. nothing secret or new about them. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's kind of just a recycle, retread. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, if, if you know it, uh, they prey on people's ignorance. <coughs> they really do. And that's, that's a sign of evil. Well, one of, one of the things that, you know, Paul wrote about, if we did know all this, it's for we are saved by faith, not through works. Mm-hmm. If we had all this information, people would boast on their works, not on faith. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, how smart, how smart I am. Don't you wish you were like me? <laughs> I will guide you for a certain fee, of course. I'll teach you the secret. You know, and that's what, what then developed uh, this idea, this, this idea, you know, developed into Gnosticism, which is a big part of these mysterious and secret gospels. Uh, but we'll, we can talk about that another time. But indeed, religions have, of course, uh, risen and fallen uh, on that matter. So, yeah, any other, any other points or questions? Thank you all for speaking on this. Okay, so let's see, what, um, let's see what, what he says about the reliability of Scripture. The significance of early copies. How old are our earliest copies and why does it matter? On this point, the text of the New Testament stands head and shoulders above other writings of the ancient world. The amount of time between when the authors wrote and the earliest known copies of their works is so short as to be negligible. All four Gospels were composed sometime in the second half of the first century. Yet we have portions of each that are from the early to mid-second century. Since manuscripts could have lasted more than 100 years before they wore out and were replaced, that means our oldest copies of the Gospel were almost certainly composed while the originals were still in use. This would have provided a clear safeguard against any serious alterations being introduced in early subsequent versions of these texts. Likewise, although Paul died in the mid-60s of the first century, we have strong evidence that some of his original letters were still in existence around the year 200. Again, this would help prevent someone from changing Paul's teachings in a drastic way since what he initially wrote could easily be checked. A similar case exists for other New Testament books as well. To put this in perspective, most original writings from the Greco-Roman world, including those of Plato, Livy, Herodotus, and Thucydides, are separated from their earliest known copies anywhere from centuries to well over a thousand years. Yet no respectable historian would be willing to dismiss these writings as hopelessly unreliable or fraudulent. Neither, then, should anyone dismiss the New Testament text, which clearly stands on much firmer ground. It is also worth noting 
that certain New Testament manuscripts are dated long before any political or churchly authorities would have been in the position to alter and control the text for their own purposes. And that's a common argument right now is that, oh, the church changed this or um, um, who is the, in, in Nicaea, um, yeah, um, or the, uh, that, that the, the authorities and the government forced them to change things, right? Now, we have the records of this. We have the meeting minutes. We have all this stuff that tells us exactly how things went. And they had texts and things that were reliable. So that's a popular thing, too. Um, uh, Islam and Mormonism will bring this out as well. They will say, oh, you can't trust, you know, the texts. Um, we need, uh, what, what do the Mormons call their holy books? Okay, okay, there's a little bit more to the Book of Mormon, okay? Another testament of Jesus Christ. And, and like, the, yeah, another testament of Jesus Christ, the Book of Mormon, uh, and the book, the Pearl of, uh, Pearl of Great Price, and Doctrines and Covenants. Those are their, their holy books. Um, they would say things like, yeah, uh, uh, oh, Jehovah's Witness too, right? They say your New Testament is, is corrupted. They say it's not right. Um, so it's, it's not just, um, you know, these atheists and whatnot, but it's also people who claim to be Christians, to claim to have the true word of God. Uh, do you have an example specifically that you know? Yeah, that's the beginning of John, where John is quoting from Genesis. Um, but that's, yeah, that, that's the big one is in the Gospel of John. They change it from the word was God to the word was a God. A God. You know, I thought they changed it in Genesis as well. They might. They might. I don't know. That's a good, that's a good question. But they, they also have their own translation of the Bible. The, anything that you see that says, do you all know what their publishing arm is? Watchtower. The Watchtower. Yeah, so anything that's done that you see by Watchtower, leaflets or things, that's, that's going to be from Jehovah's Witness. And, and this, this is a very good point. This is, this, is what, this is why Jehovah's Witness and Mormons are not Christian, is because they don't believe that Jesus is God, the same God as the Father and the Holy Spirit. Jesus is just another lower, or just a different God, lower God, okay? So uh, uh, Jehovah's Witness and Mormons, that's why we don't consider them Christian, just on a very basic. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, and in fact, you know, too, also, you know, they, New York was the chosen place for God's people until the government said no, and then he went to Utah and said, this is God's chosen place for his people. Yeah, yeah, uh, how, how, uh, how convenient. Um, but they too, right, they, they too... <laughs> This is part of the reason why they have other holy texts, and Islam is also is called progressive revelation. They believe that God is still revealing things. Progressive revelation. So they can change, they can change foundational doctrines. Both Islam and Mormonism can change foundational doctrines in their church. Um, various things, anywhere from drinking caffeine to, you know, are African Americans or people who are not white, is that the curse of Cain? 
and they can change things. Can, can women be pastor or priests, whatever they want to call it? They can change these things that because they believe God is still revealing things uh, in, in real time. Whereas we would say, no, uh, God has revealed to us everything that we need to know for salvation. Yeah, Chris. It does seem like a big deal. I told you about that guy that I talked to on the plane in the morning. Mm-hmm. That was one of the things that we talked about for quite a long time, that this idea of this progressive revelation. Yeah. And they believe that God is still speaking to people. And he was really adamant, why couldn't God still be talking to people? Like, hmm, let's talk about that. What does the Bible say? And what about Christ? And so he was mm-hmm. very sincere about thinking that, gee, you could just, because I was trying to understand why he would mm-hmm. believe that God was talking to Joseph Smith. There's no other, there's no other backup for Yeah, yeah. It's tempting, you know, um, to, to a lot of those questions. You know, couldn't God? You know, and that, and that exactly is exactly what the devil does. You know, he makes he. It's uh, what do we call that now? Gaslighting, right? Couldn't what you are limiting God, right? Couldn't he keep reveals another path of salvation? Who are you to limit God? You know, that that's that's pretty bad. Um, but uh, yeah, we'll we'll this will this will come up and and we'll we'll keep talking about that and, and keep going. But it's the ultimate version of of the ga, you know gaslight. Um, you know, by taking away the certainty of salvation, that is precisely what the devil wants to do. Did God really say? I mean, God, you know, did He really say this? Can you really trust Him? Um, yeah, yeah, good, good. And that's how they, that's how they get you. Okay, um, bottom of page 28. Okay, we, we, just, we just discussed the early copies, that the, the first copies of the New Testament that we have were written at a time when the originals would have been around. And even in the New Testament, in Paul's letters, he talks about these letters and things, sermons that are being passed about and moved around that, that people have and were, it would have been easy to say, no, Paul, you're full of it. How many copies, bottom of 28, how many copies do we have to compare with one another? How many copies of the Bible do we have to to put next to each other and and see what what the differences are? The more copies scholars can evaluate and analyze, the better equipped they will be when determining the initial wording of a text. Thankfully, this is another area in which the New Testament has excellent credentials. We have almost 6,000 total Greek manuscripts. While some of these are small fragments, the average size of a New Testament manuscript is 450 pages. Add to this the ancient versions composed in other languages, the quotations found in the writings of early church fathers, and the use of scripture in formal worship gatherings. And there are tens of thousands of early versions of the New Testament that scholars can compare with one another. Thus, it has often been said that the textual critic of the New Testament is embarrassed by the wealth of material. <laughs> we, how much we have, it's embarrassing. 
To be sure, not all of these manuscripts are as old as the second century, but even our relatively late copies of the New Testament agree quite closely with our early ones. This point leads us to the topic of the nature of the variants. So what about these variants, differences? The significance of the variants. What is the nature of the mistakes and discrepancies in the copies? Okay, so mistakes and discrepancies in the copies means if a scribe was copying something and he was tired and he put two eyes instead of just one, you know. So what, what are these? What are the nature of these discrepancies in the copies? The vast majority of variants between copies of the New Testament have absolutely no bearing on the meaning of the text. Spelling mistakes, for example, are easy to detect and almost never change what the author is trying to say. Likewise, the order of words in Greek is far less important than in English. In our language, the subject can change if you simply switch the nouns. God so loved the world versus the world so loved God. In Greek, however, most words change form based on the role they play in the sentence. So if someone shifted words around when copying a text, the basic meaning stayed the same. Another common but harmless habit of the scribes was to substitute proper names for pronouns, changing he told them another parable to Jesus told them another parable is hardly a troublesome difference. There are, however, some notable instances where textual critics are either uncertain of the original wording or have determined that certain passages are later additions to the text. Yet none of these are substantial enough to cause Christians to doubt any essential beliefs about Jesus or to reject the historical reliability of the New Testament. In fact, many modern translations of the Bible include footnotes about these textual differences. All right, let's take a look at that. Um, let's open our Bible to the Gospel of John. You may have seen this before. Look at John chapter 8. Is this, is this in the Sunday School Bible? I thought all y'all had Lutheran study Bibles. <laughs> poke, poke, poke the bear. Please don't eat me. Um, yes, the, the ones who have the true revelation. Yeah. The ones who are closer to heaven. Okay, John chapter 8. Let's see, what does the Sunday School Bible have here? Oh, yeah, it does. Looky there on page 1137. See that footnote there? What, is that, what does that say? The story of the woman caught in adultery is not in some of the earliest manuscripts. I don't know if you've never noticed that. In your Bibles, it's there. But this shows you the honesty with which the Christian copyists and scribes deal with the text of the Bible. And in fact, we Christians. Now think about this. If we were trying to hide the truth, what do you think we would do with this? Yeah, we would, we would say, oh, that's, that's, that, that, uh, that's nothing. No, no. no, but generation after generation, the tradition, according to Christians, is we are very open and plain about some of the challenges we have because we don't worship, we don't worship the Bible. 
And this is one of those ways in which we are very bold and honest in saying, look, some of the earliest manuscripts don't have this story, but a lot of them do. So it's kind of a, a check on honesty. It says, look, we're, we're willing to say, yeah, this, this we're, we, we don't, we don't, we're not as firm with this as we are with other scriptures and other parts. So how does the church handle this in some regards? <laughs> a lot of times the church, we will form doctrine on some of these parts, but we kind of call them secondary doctrines, or we say they're not as strongly attested to, um, uh, things like that. Things that, are not, things that are not a danger to the faith, right, if, if you kind of have doubts about them. So, you know, the story with the woman caught in adultery, there is, there is nothing really here that is what we call a sedes doctrinae, a seat of doctrine. Uh, that this is a place where we go to to prove a major doctrine of the Christian faith, like Jesus was raised from the dead, right? There's, there's none of that in here. Um, but yet, still, we have good enough textual evidence to say that some early manuscripts, it wasn't there, but some other earlier ones said, yeah, we have record of this. And so they, they include it. But they put, the, they put the footnote on there. They put the asterisk there um, to, to talk about that. And this is a very, very deep, and you can go very far in this topic. You can go very deep in the woods, and some people, that's good. I'm glad we have those people. Um, but just so you know, if you run across this in your reading, you know, it, we're honest about this. We say it, right? This is, this is the truth. This is what we have. Um, because if we were trying to cover up a lie, you want to be as generic as possible. This is also another one of my favorite things about the Easter story. How many Marys are there in the Easter story? <laughs> you know, if you're making this story up, if you're writing this as a narrative, you want it to be, you know, you're not going to name five people Mary. You know, you're just not going to do that. But if it's the truth, you're going to, you're going to, I mean, there were four Marys. We're going to put four Marys. Um, you know, that, that's one clue of the trustworthiness of this, the, the story and, and the scriptures. So that's another way the text itself is honest about some of the challenges of it, even as we are with this story in John chapter 8. The scriptures themselves in attesting to the witness of Jesus, Mary, 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 we're all there. <laughs> and because that was the truth. And the disciples, they were willing to die for this story too because they know it was the truth. Uh, they, they, they know this and were willing to testify to that. Okay, so that's, that's, um, that's one example of this. And he's going he's gonna to mention this here in a second. Okay, um, bottom of page 29. In fact, many modern translations of the Bible include footnotes about these textual differences. There you go. You wouldn't expect this if there were a conspiracy theory to keep the truth hidden. Now let us consider a few of these variants and their significance. When scholars are uncertain about questionable variants, what really changes? In cases where scholars are unsure how a text should read, the options always serve to reinforce teachings that are clearly and indisputably found elsewhere. That's where we find the primary places for doctrine. And what we say, if you don't believe this, you are outside the Christian faith. So we take those from clear scriptures. 
In Mark 1.41, for instance, the textual evidence is unclear whether Jesus felt anger or compassion when healing a leper. Does the picture of an angry Jesus sound surprising? It shouldn't. The Lord also expressed righteous anger in Mark 3, 4 to 6 when healing on the Sabbath. And in John 11, 32 to 40 before raising Lazarus from the dead. If Jesus showed anger in Mark 1, 41, this would not be at odds with his character displayed elsewhere. Another example of this kind comes from John 1, 18, where the evidence is equally divided between the text reading, the one and only Son and the one and only God. Since this phrase is referring to Jesus, some have claimed it is a clear instance of copyists changing the words to promote the idea that Jesus is God. Yet, many other passages in John also affirm the truth that Jesus is fully divine. The opening verse says he was God, John 1.1. That was your example, Matt. And at the end of the gospel, he is hailed by Thomas as my Lord and my God, John 20.28. 20, if a scribe changed son to God in John 1.18, he was hardly inventing a new belief about Jesus. When scholars are certain about questionable variants, what really changes? There are three prominent variants that scholars have determined were not part of the original New Testament. These are the longer ending of Mark, right? So we saw this in John. Now turn to Mark. Let's turn to the end of Mark. Now look at your Bibles again in uh, Mark chapter 16. Look, at, look right there at verses 8 and 9. There should be another, another, little, another little footnote that says some of the earliest manuscripts do not include this. Okay. All right. Uh, the woman caught in adultery, uh, back to page 30 of, of our book. The woman caught in adultery, John chapter 7 to 8, 11. The Trinitarian formula of 1 John 5, 7 and 8. Because these passages are either well known or deal with the crucial topics of Easter Sunday and the Trinity, some people may be unsettled to hear they are inauthentic. Inauthentic, by the way, does not mean certain events never happened in any way but that these sections perhaps were later additions to the text. In each case, however, it should be remembered that removing these verses by no means changes or challenges what Christians have always believed. Read for yourself and see. The shorter ending of Mark plainly affirms the resurrection. There are multiple passages in which Jesus deals mercifully with repentant sinners, but calls out the self-righteous, and the doctrine of the Trinity is clearly found elsewhere, such as in Matthew 28, 19. This brings us to our overall point about the variants in the New Testament manuscripts. When every single copy is examined and all known variants are added up and accounted for, less than 1% of them have the potential to change the meaning of the text. And among these, there is no case in which any fundamental belief or traditional Christianity is even threatened. There was a funny comic that I used to I don't know if I ever had it on my door or not, but it's a bunch of Roman Catholic uh, monks down in a basement, and they're reading these New Testament texts, and it, it, um, and it, it says, um, oh, what is it? Uh, uh, one of the texts that, that they say they're translating it, and it says, you must, you must always be celibate. Right, you know, because they teach their priesthood needs to be celibate, which means remain from uh, remain from uh, intercourse, and um, 
and there, there's some monks sitting there and they're reading it. And there's another monk who's going like this. And he says, we've mistranslated celibate. The text says celebrate. <laughs> uh, so there's all these monks standing around like, uh, you know, and then others are like jumping. Yeah, you know, uh, we can be married. Um, but um, that's kind of the one of the points here that there's nothing in there that, that makes this big of a difference. There's one, there's, and we're, he's going to get into them here. There's, there's one maybe error or variant. Uh, this is one of the Old Testament ones or one of the ones that's quoted in the New Testament that says, thou shalt commit adultery. I mean, you kind of know. <laughs> the copyist <laughs> forgot a little important word there by all the testimony of the other scripts and the rest of the scriptures. Thou shalt not commit adultery. <laughs> okay, more errors than words. Verse, uh, page 31. A popular claim in recent years has been that our copies of the New Testament contain more errors than they do words. Technically, this is correct, but it is also extremely misleading. First, variants, mistakes, differences, and errors are often used interchangeably in textual criticism. To speak of errors in the New Testament, however, can give non-professionals the impression that the text is not and cannot be the Word of God. Second, as previously discussed, most all textual differences do not affect the integrity of the text in the least. Lastly, the number of errors is so high because the number of manuscripts is also so high. If we only possessed one copy of the New Testament, there would be no variants. If we possessed three copies, we would have very few textual variants. But with thousands of copies, the variants increase tremendously while the number of words remains roughly the same. Thus, the phrase, more errors than words, doesn't tell the whole story. And a lot of these people, these professional atheists, those who debate Christianity, they know this. They know that there's a bunch of mistakes because if you have one mistake and 3,000 people copy that one mistake, they count that as not one mistake, but 3,000. And they know this but yet they still lob that accusation. There are more errors than words. Well, okay, yes, but no. <laughs> what do the kids say now? Sorry, not sorry. <laughs> okay, you, you can use that, you know, but don't blame me if the kids start to think you're cool. All right, um, this, is, this is one thing that actually all of, the all of the variants, all of the errors, quote unquote, actually lead to realize the fact there are so many copies of this that far surpass anything else. So when they bring that up, it, it almost helps our point. It's almost like, yeah, there's a lot of errors because people thought this was so important, they copied it 3,000 times. They wanted people all over the world to know this. They were ready, ready to die for it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. This is a. It is a science. It. It really is. Any other questions, or as we go to the conclusion, um, 
as we've seen, there are excellent reasons for trusting the text of the New Testament. It's far from being hopelessly corrupted by scribes pushing their own theological agendas. The manuscript evidence is so good that textual critics are able to reconstruct the original wording with remarkable accuracy. In the very few places where they cannot or where they have discovered later editions, no core tenet of Christianity is affected by such variants. Simply put, despite being copied imperfectly at times, the text is sufficiently accurate for us to understand the author's teachings. We remain confident and justified, therefore, in referring to the New Testament as God's inspired truth. Jesus himself says, you will know the truth. And what's the purpose of the truth? To set you free. And so we then look at what does freedom mean? You know, what is Jesus teaching us? Freedom. Freedom from sin, not freedom to sin. Um, and this aspect, the fact that we can articulate truth, you know, even Jesus recognized this, right? Like uh, the, the woman who came to Jesus with a sick daughter and repeatedly said, hey, heal my daughter. I know who you are. Heal my daughter. You know, Jesus says, ah, yeah, get away. The disciples said, Lord, tell her to go away. And then she confesses Jesus as the true God. And Jesus says, you got it, sister. He says, you've got the truth. You can articulate absolute truth that has handed down from God. Because people will try to attack this, especially in our day and age, but it's always been the accusation. How can you know truth? There's so many differences out there. How can you know any truth? It's like, well, if there's a lot of differences out there, then that must mean there is one truth. Must mean there is one teaching, one truth, that is the absolute truth that everything is trying to mock or change. Um, I had a last point, but I forgot. Um, any other questions? I, 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 wish, I would like to study this topic some more. Um, I am not as well-versed in it as I would like. Um, that New Testament that I showed you that I had here that had all the footnotes in it, the Greek New Testament, that's what all of those are, saying this guy says the author said Jesus. Well, this other guy said Son of God. And so we just note that. This is a textual variant, but none of it is, is so bad. Archaeology is our greatest friend in all of this. Archaeology has helped us tremendously in this battle um, because the truth does come out and it will come out fully on the last day. But archaeology, when they discover, like um, when they discover a, a library, an ancient library buried in a cave, right? Like Dead Sea Scrolls and things like that. And they find ancient documents from before Jesus was born. Old Testament scripts like of Isaiah, right? They find one that was written before Jesus was born by 200 years. And they take it and then they compare it to the Isaiah we have now. And it's 99% the same words. That says something. Archaeology is always proving Christianity to be true. It's a blessing. It's great. Okay, well, let's close with prayer. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not hidden the truth, but have revealed it for the whole world to see in raising your son Jesus from the dead. We pray, O oh Lord, that during this Lenten season, we may consider the truthfulness of your word, that we would repent of our sins, that we would, by your Holy Spirit, that you would strengthen our Lenten fast 
so that we may look forward to celebrating Easter with joy and knowing that the fast of forgiveness, the fast of, of, of death, um, that eternal life has now been won and that all things are given to us for our good. Grant us wisdom to use all things to the glory of your name for your good, uh, that we would confess you as the risen Savior who's ascended to the right hand. We ask you to be with us this week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.